it's John and Casey here from Are You Real? And we've been sleeping on my pillow now for over a month. And I'm telling you, our sleep has improved drastically. So what are you waiting for? When are you going to jump on board and start experiencing the kind of restorative sleep you need in your life? Are you waiting for a better offer? Well, your wait is over because if you go to MyPillow.com right now, you can take advantage of the MyPillow four-pack offer, right, John? That's right. You get two premium MyPillows and two to-go anywhere pillows at half off. Just go to MyPillow.com, use my code REAL, and get 50% off. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the four-pack special, and enter promo code REAL, or call 1-800-943-4615. But don't forget, you got to use promo code REAL. Welcome to Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You, the podcast that focuses on Christians that are active in everyday life. Join in as we speak to everyone from successful business owners to educators to athletes about their faith and how it helps them reach out and revolutionize those around them to do the same. And now get ready to roar with your host, the voice of manifestation, John Fuller. Hey, Word Nation, John Fuller here, and I am fired up for today's interview. I got something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about burnout and all kinds of different stuff. So I'm excited about that because I think over the last couple years, I have suffered from several of these things. And our guest, Carrie Newhoff, is going to help me. Carrie, you fired up and ready to do this thing? Well, I am now, but I wasn't when I was burned out. I can tell you that much. <laughs> I'm ready to go, John. <laughs> I totally. guarantee it. All right. So Roar Nation, um, Carrie is a former lawyer and founding pastor of Conexus Church in Barrie, Ontario. He's uh, one of the most influential churches in North America. He's a sought-after speaker, podcaster, which we love podcasters, and thought leader. He's regularly appearing at major U.S. conferences and events such as Orange, Exponential, Rethink Leadership, and Lifeway Leadership. He and his wife, Tony, reside near Barrie, Ontario, and have two children. All right, man, that tells us nothing so much about you. So why don't you give us a uh, from-the-top view of uh, who you are and what you do, Kerry? Yeah, well, I never ever thought I'd be in ministry, that's for sure. From the time I was eight years old, John, I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, I don't know, you know, what makes an eight-year-old want to be a lawyer, but all that was wrong with me when I was eight. Got into the (laughs) law school in my dreams. I did radio along the way. So I did radio in my hometown when I was 16. I walked in, I said, like, hire me. That's probably the entrepreneurial thing God gave me. And and then, um, you know, I did that in Toronto as well. Got a job in Toronto radio, but kind of realized like back then you were washed up at 40 in radio. And I knew that now everybody in broadcasting is like 50, 55 years old. But back then it was a young person's game. So, you know, if you're in your twenties, you're on top of the world by 40, you were yesterday's news. So I thought, well, there's not much of a future in that and ended up still going to law school. It's like, well, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I'll go to law school and got into the law school of my dreams and in between first and second year law, felt a call into ministry. It was the most surprising thing in the world because I don't really have any of the gifts. You know, this is a podcast about finding your purpose and what does that mean? And I kind of knew I had the gifts for law, but I did not have the gift set for ministry. So it was really, really confusing to me. Finished law, worked for a year in downtown Toronto as a student, and then uh, got called to the bar. Uh, got qualified in the whole deal, and then went straight off into seminary and ended up uh, in the middle of seminary. I thought, gosh, I've been in school a long time. I was pushing my late 20s by then because I did history and then I did law and like, you know, got qualified as a lawyer and then went into seminary. So I went up north of Toronto 23 years ago to these little tiny dying mainline churches uh, with average attendances of six 14 and 23. That was the mega church. I would do the circuit on Sunday. And long story short, uh, I'm still here 23 years later. So it's not six and 12 and, or, you know, 14 and 23 anymore. We have about 1500 people on the weekend, three locations and about 5,000 people who watch us online every week. So, um, yeah, we're very grateful for the journey. I'm, I'm really surprised at where it's taken me into speaking and writing and podcasting and helping leaders and helping people thrive in life and leadership. 
But I think it was Joe Walsh who said, have you ever seen that documentary, The Eagles? It's the long one on Netflix. It's no, pretty good. Uh-uh. Uh, it's, 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 a good, it's a good watch. And um, Joe Walsh has, I think, five brain cells left. He uh, was pretty hard on himself with drugs in the, in the 70s and 80s. I, I understand he's been clean and sober for a while now. But he said something really interesting. He said, you know, when you, when you look at the time, at different moments in your life, everything seems like it's really confused and twisted and like it's completely random. But looking back on it, it looks like a beautifully constructed poem. I and I think that. he's right because what I need right now at this point in my life, um, God kind of gave me through that really weird circuitous path of like, you know, what makes a 16 year old walk into a radio station and go, Hey man, hire me. And then they do. And then my year in law, I spent a year almost every day in court and boy, you get good on your feet fast when you're in court every day up against lawyers who are 10, 15 years older than you. And so I learned a lot of communication skills. I learned a lot of analytical skills in those early years that I'm still using today, not only for ministry, but for writing books and podcasting and helping leaders. So it's been a fun journey. This sounds like a really fun journey. So let's back up, what, 20, 30 years uh, mm-hmm. to law. When you felt the call to ministry, I'm just curious, how did you make that transition or what did that look like? So did you know you were gonna or you were just kind of playing with the idea? It came out of the blue. Um, I was going to be a lawyer. Like I was a Christian. So raised in a Christian home, gave my life to Christ as a teenager 682 times. You know, it was one of those, every time I sinned, it was like, okay. Yeah, I got saved every Sunday. Exactly. Yeah, I went to the altar every Sunday to repent for what I did Friday and Saturday night. Bingo. Yeah, that was my life. And there was a lot to repent of. But, you know, (laughs) late teens, early 20s kind of drifted away. Uh, never really walked away, but you know, I was right on the border. And then 21, 22, I kind of woke up and said, okay, you know, as far as my spiritual journey goes, I got to either follow Jesus or forget about it. Like I can't pretend anymore. Started reading my Bible, praying every day. Uh, I said, I'd do it for six months and make up my mind. Didn't take six months, recommitted my life to Christ, but I was still going to be a lawyer right? Like just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to go into ministry. And I'd honestly never thought about it. I thought about going into teaching. I thought about going into law. I thought about broadcasting, radio. I had all kinds of careers that I had as a backup in case law didn't work out. But I got into the law school of my dreams. And then, you know, the big question for those of us who are Christians in law school was, how do you actually practice law ethically? Because you know, it has a reputation and the whole deal. So, you know, I thought, well, there's a really good firm that I I know. And I got a job there for my first summer between first and second year law. It was in my hometown. And so I practiced law there or well, as a student, really for the summer. And I really enjoyed it. It was going well. They offered me a job. They said, hey, when you're finished Osgood, come and look us up. We'll, we'll hire you back. So my life was kind of set. And then um, one afternoon, I'm, I don't come from a charismatic tradition, and uh, I, I just had the supernatural experience where I had a vision of myself at uh, 20 years in advance. I was 44. So I think I was 24 at the time. I was 44 years old, and I was very successful professionally, but morally bankrupt. Mm. Like wife was gone, kids were gone, you know, all the money in the world, the house, the fame, the recognition. But like inside, I was, I was just a shell. And I don't know why I knew it in that moment. I was wide awake. It was like a daydream. It was like a vision. It was just in an instant. It happened. I saw it and I knew, okay, this is, this is from God. I think this is from God. And then I didn't know what it meant, but I knew this. I knew that law wasn't for me. And as I walked out of the office that day, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do law. Then um, I left that lawyer's office that I was working in in the afternoon. I went to the library of the firm, the boardroom, and I'm kind of looking out this big bay window in my hometown trying to figure out, well, what does this mean if I'm not going to practice law? Oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? God, is that actually you? And I heard this prompting. And again, I'm not somebody who like wakes up every day and, you know, the Lord told me to eat Wheaties. Like I, that is not my 
background. I'm like, I read the Bible. I prayed. I'm going to do the best thing I know how to do. That's still how I conduct my life. But I'm praying at that moment, like, God, give me some direction and insight because I'm lost. And I'm looking down First Street from the law firm, and I see my home church, the, the, the church that I grew up in. But the only part of the church you can really see from the angle that I was at in the law firm in the boardroom was the pastor's study. Like I knew the church well enough to know, oh, those are the office windows. And I felt this prompting. It wasn't an audible, an audible voice, but it was definitely a voice that said, you need to be in there. And I'm like, what? Ministry? Weirdest thing in the world. Uh, I finished law five o'clock at the office that day. I went to pick up my soon-to-be fiance. We were going back to my parents for dinner. And I didn't tell her a word. I didn't say anything. And we're driving to my parents' place. She looks at me and she goes, have you ever thought about going into ministry? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you'll never believe what happened to me at the office today. So that was was a crazy period in my life. And I was really confused. But my reform background took me to the place where I pretty quickly realized, okay, your call has to be confirmed in the people around you, right? If you're the only person who thinks you're called, maybe you're not called. Right. There's lots of people. It's like, I know God is calling me. Well, nobody else seems to think so. So I didn't want to be that guy. And I just started talking about it that day. We processed it with my parents. I, I ran it by some spiritual mentors in the church. I I took it back to some of my college buddies and said, guys, you'll never believe what happened to me this summer. And they're like, oh yeah, totally. And none of them were Christians. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So it kept getting confirmed and confirmed and confirmed. And that, that moved me um, in, into seminary, but it was a total, like just chaos and confusion once I got into seminary. Cause I thought I don't belong here and I don't have any gifts. So I don't know what to do with this, but well, here I am. So real quick, let's, I want to back up just a little bit. Cause I think a lot of times we feel we're in one thing. So you're a lawyer and then we feel called to do something else, which I think is a great place to be. My curiosity, though, is how did you make that transition at what point? Because that's a big jump. I mean, you, in my mind, in a logical mind, I'm going to think um, for most people that I would say, man, I just spent 100000 or hundreds of thousands of dollars on education. I have years invested in this. Um, uh, I have all these things. It doesn't make sense in my logical mind to make this jump. And, and the one thing I like that you did say is you talked to people and you got more confirmation. But... Where did you make the hurdle and the jump? Because that's a big deal because you have a lot invested in what you're doing, right? Or what you were doing at the time. I had a ton invested. And fortunately for me, I worked through law school. Also, uh, my fiance was a pharmacist, so she made uh, decent money. And between the two of us, uh, we actually ended up getting married in, I don't know, actually, yeah, we got married in law school. So we were able to come out of law school almost debt-free which was a miracle, a which, was, which was great. Yeah. But you're right. I had five years of my life totally invested in it. One of the decisions I made, John, was I, I decided, and this was, I was ready to go into seminary right away. And then I had a couple of people in my life, particularly my dad, who said, finish what you start, told you that since you were three years old, finish what you start. So I thought, okay, I'm going to finish it. So glad I did. Like right through to writing the bar admission course, I did all the exams, which are brutal. And I got them done. I passed. I went to the ceremony. You know, they made me a member of the Law Society of Upper Canada. And then I resigned. <laughs> and, you know, I did I did the year in downtown Toronto. And here's why I did the year in downtown Toronto, because I knew one of the biggest criticisms of pastors is you've never actually done anything with your life. You haven't earned a paycheck other than, you know, maybe you waited on tables for a year while you were in high school or something. And I thought, no, I'm going to go into the business world, downtown Toronto, in the office towers, and I am going to learn what it's like to earn a paycheck for 365 days. That was, I mean, that shows up all over my latest book. It's like, I learned so much in that year. I just took really good notes. And um, I'm so glad I, I, I followed that, um, like followed through on that, because I feel like I use my law all the time. That was by far, I have three degrees, one in history, uh, one in theology, and one in law. That was the toughest degree. Like it, it, you know, my, I went from a straight A student when I graduated undergrad down to like B's and C's and a couple of random A's in first year law. It was just an intellectual drubbing. And so it retrained my brain 
it really made me think analytically in a very different way. And then the practice of law too was a lot of fun because they, they sent me to court every day, which is what I wanted to do. And man, talk about like learning on your feet in front of judges who really don't have a lot of empathy or patience for people who aren't well prepared. I'm using all of that stuff moving forward. And then I just went into seminary. I thought, okay, I finished that well. So as to the transition, I just went to seminary out of obedience. It's like, okay, here I am. I have no idea what this means. Now what? Now I really didn't know. It's like, I'm supposed to be here, but I feel like I closed that chapter well. The challenge was I had already done law was five and then undergrad was three or four. Oh my gosh. I'd done like nine years of post-secondary already. It was crazy. I'm writing this down. I like what you just said right now. You said you closed that chapter well. And uh, I think there's a lot of significance in that. I don't even know if you <laughs> meant to say that, but I think people need to yeah. hear that because a lot of times I think we feel called. I can't tell you how many times, especially in the business world, I hear somebody say, you know, I hate my job or I want to do this or I want to do that. And they just get up and they leave. And uh, in another term, oh, they, yeah. they burn that bridge and it's foolish because especially in the business world, you know, you could go into something entirely different, but you know, it could be 10 years down the road, you run into those people and they made that transition or you have to go sell those people something because of the business that you just, you never know. Oh, I'll tell you, that is a great lesson, John. And honestly, being in the same community for 23 years, I mean, even in, in, on the ministry side, I I just want to underscore what you just said. Uh, People have come and gone from our church over the years. Like our our story has been net growth, but you know how that works. There's a back door, there's a front door. You just have to make sure your front door is bigger than your back door and that your back door isn't irresponsibly large, right? Like that's, that's life. We're not a cult. You can leave and people do leave. But if you stick around for 23 years, they come back. Yeah. And if you have burned bridges or you've talked about them negatively behind their back or, you know, you, oh man, I'll tell you, it's, it's, and I'm shocked. Some Sundays it's like, really, you're back? I thought we were the worst thing ever. And now you're back. I go, okay, all right. Um, So yeah, the high road's not the easy road, but it's the best road. Absolutely. And plus, I look at it selfishly. What I learned in those five years in law, people used to ask me all the time. They would say, you know, especially in my first few years of ministry. So do you use your law, you know, now that you're in ministry? And I, at first my answer was no, because like I'm not reading contracts every day or suing people or, you know, ending up in court. Um, but I think the answer now is, oh yeah, absolutely. I use it every day because it completely, because it kicked my butt so hard, it completely retrained my mind and how I analyze problems, how I see leadership, how I tackle life really is done through the analytic framework of, of a lawyer. The other thing I would say to exiting well, I didn't go into ministry because I hated law. I loved law. Like I had, I had all these plans and dreams and ambitions, and I was going to be in the Supreme Court by the age of 30, and I was going to get into constitutional law because it was academic. Like I had, I had all these plans, and then God kind of went, I felt like, and so did others, that God went, nope. It's like, close that door, and here's a new one for you to walk through. So I, I just went into to seminary really like, okay, this is not what I was going to do with my life, but I'm here trying to be obedient. So now what? But I felt like I had to die to like all these dreams and ambitions that maybe, you know, what I was going to say that I put in my heart. Yeah. I'm not sure I put those in my heart. I think God did like his, he's sovereign. Right. And, and I was there for five years for a very specific purpose, but I didn't know what it was at the time. I want to, I want to hit on that for a second, Carrie is Looking back, so a lot of times at that transition where you, you in your mind you're thinking, I love doing what I'm doing, but I feel called to go into ministry, and you're having that kind of tug of war within your heart, I would think, I would. Um, but looking back, though, I, I would assume that you have no regrets, and I wanted you to hit on that point because I think sometimes people need that nudge and that encouragement to make that leap of faith, even when it doesn't make sense, because now you can look back and see all the things that God's done in your life. Had you not made that leap of faith, you know, um, you wouldn't be where you are today. No, it's, it's totally true. And it was, it was a study in downward mobility. 
I mean, everything you learn about career and, and life from the marketplace is upward mobility, right? You got to, right. next year is more money. Next year is more people. Next year is more responsibility. And I remember I started working in a church and it was my first, I'd volunteered for years, basically my whole life. And, and then I got my first paid job in a church in student ministry at a church in Toronto. And it was a, it was a fairly prosperous church. So a lot of the people who worked in the bank towers downtown would end up at that church on the weekend, which was, you know, sort of a midtown church. So they put me in charge of, of, of their um, youth ministry. And I enjoyed doing that. I wasn't the best youth pastor, but I enjoyed doing it. And I remember the, the first day I got my paycheck, the treasurer of the church was somebody who, who worked as a financial planner in downtown Toronto. And he came over and he handed me, this is the day of, you know, the era of paychecks. He handed me my paycheck and he said, I just want to apologize. He said, I know this used to be your hourly rate, but this is for the last two weeks. Here oh, my you. God. <laughs> Enjoy this. <laughs> Enjoy this. He said, ministry doesn't pay what law pays. And and it didn't. I mean, when I came up here, so that church went on really well. Um and I was trying to figure out, I'm sort of jumping ahead a couple of years. I'm trying to figure out in the middle of seminary, okay, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to teach? Like, am I going to be a professor? I went down to Princeton. They offered me a scholarship, the whole deal. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll get my doctorate and then I'll teach people how to preach because I'm a communicator, right? I was in radio. I, I did law in court, so maybe I can do that. But we really wanted to to make sure that we were following God's will, not our will. And so there was the question of congregational ministry. So I had found out about these three churches, which I ended up going to. And um, long story short, I had I was at that time working at that church that handed me that tiny paycheck. And I said, hey, you know what? There's these three churches north of Toronto. I may be going there next year rather than staying here for the summer. Uh, I want to sort of explore being a senior pastor. Um, I just want to give you guys a heads up that, you know, I'm doing this. So their elders met and they came to me. This is a church in a very prosperous neighborhood in Toronto, very desirable neighborhood, ministering to the kind of people I thought I would be ministering to. Bankers, lawyers, you know, those those kinds of people, people in the finance industry. I thought I get that world given my background. So they came to me and they said, "Okay, we hear you might be going north. Here's a counter offer." They offered me almost what I would be making as a first-year lawyer in downtown Toronto. They said, within five years, you'll be the senior pastor of this church. I was 28, 29. Most people wait till they're 50 to be the senior pastor of that church, and you can take over. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then, and then you know, we ended up preaching up here, uh, and, and then they wanted a choice. The church is up here north of Toronto. They wanted a choice, so they had me and a classmate do a preach-off which was a really bad idea. I won by one vote, like literally <laughs> one vote. So 49.9% of the congregation it, was against it. It was an early version of uh, American Idol. It was, it was. I, and I was almost, almost sent home. Um, and, and then they told me what I would be making. So uh, $19,000 a year. Oh man, which, you're uh, killing it. Plus a house. Yeah. Living the life. And, and, you know, I was totally torn because I'm like, I didn't want it to be a financial decision right? because it's like, I had to give that up. And if I wanted to make money, I should stay in law. I could have been making six figures in a couple of years, the whole deal. And we didn't want to make ministry a, a financial decision. So, you know, we really prayed about it. And, um, once again, I got a handful of times in my life where I feel like God showed up supernaturally. But the uh, guy who was leading the search up here called my house in Toronto, my apartment in Toronto. And he's, he's, I said, George, I don't know whether I can make a commitment. Like I got this possibility in Toronto. You, you've offered me this. And he goes, oh, Carrie, why don't you just come up to Oro, place I live, and help us? I'm like, George, just give me three days. Hung up the phone, short conversation. He was heartbroken. My wife, by that point, we're married. She says to me, well, now what do we do? I don't know. And she says, well, why don't we read the Bible? And I, you know, just kind of arrogantly, I'm like, what do you do? You just open the Bible randomly and like pick some verse? Like, what do you do? Come on. And so um, my mind went to Acts chapter 16, where Paul had to make a decision about where to travel. Long story short, he decides to go to Macedonia because a man from Macedonia appeared in the middle of the night and said to Paul, why don't you just come to Macedonia and help us? 
I knew enough New Testament background to know that Macedonia was poor. And I knew enough about Oro to know that these were churches that were poor. Yeah. So we cried up here, and here we are 23 years later. And uh, $19,000 a year. So, yeah, it's, it's not that anymore, fortunately. But you know what? I've, I've found that almost every move I've made in my life has involved a pay cut, has involved downward mobility, risk. And God has, has been faced every step of the way. I think that's interesting. So, obviously, you took huge pay cuts each time. But um, I think God has very well blessed that over time uh, in each area. So it's been significantly uh, worth the investment, per se. For sure. But, you know, the interesting thing about how I've experienced God working is he doesn't show you that Mm -mm. in advance. You know, I stepped out of the lead pastor role here three years ago. We still had two kids in university, which, as you know, is extremely expensive. Um, I insisted on a pay cut because I said, I can't make more than the new lead pastor. Like if I'm the founding pastor and just teaching, I've got to have a pay cut. My wife's like, well, here we are once again, jumping off a cliff. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and, and once again, you know, I didn't know that my speaking would take off or that my books would sell or that, you know, my courses would do well. And so God has a way of providing but I have discovered that he's saying, Carrie, I need you to take the jump first. Are you ready to take the jump? And I think if you're willing to, I, I, and, and it's not a, hey, if you jump, it's going to work out 100%. But all I'm saying is I've lacked for nothing. And uh, I have a lot of affection. My wife is a lawyer. She went on, she, you know, um, has practiced for years. But uh, it, 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 it's not a guarantee but I have found the faithfulness of God is impossible to underestimate. Man, amen to that. There is, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Okay, so talking about taking the jump, I do want to jump uh, into your book. A lot of times um, we're able to kind of dive in and out with some of my questions on your book, but I think you're going to actually hit, you know, one of my next questions uh, that I usually ask is kind of that low spot in your life where you yeah. just can't get worse than this. And then, um, and then God, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I'm holding your book actually in my hand right now. And from what I'm gathering, I feel like this book is a highlight of a lot of low points because you couldn't write this book without hitting some serious low points. So uh, the book is called Didn't See It Coming and uh, Overcoming the Seven Greatest Challenges That No One Expects and Everyone Experiences. So why don't we dive into the journey of this book and hit some high points uh, that you would like to talk about? You know, what really surprised me, John, was everybody would expect, oh, yeah, in law, you're going to get burned out, cynical, the whole deal. Well, I was only in law for a year in, in, in the marketplace, you know, five total in training. Law didn't make me cynical. I was like super optimistic, idealistic, going to change the world. Um, but after the first decade of ministry, by the time I hit 40, I was cynical. I completely burned out. Uh, I felt empty on the inside. And I'm like, how did serving God do this to me? And the biggest surprise of my life was, and we had a great church. I mean, we started with those little tiny churches, but uh, you know, we we became the fastest growing church in our denomination, one of the three largest. We, you know, people were driving from an hour away to come to our church. Lots of unchurched people were being saved. So things in in ministry were going fantastic, but things on the inside of me as a leader were kind of falling apart and as a person. And not in the headline sense that, you know, there was no affair, there was no scandal. It wasn't the stuff that that gets you out of ministry. It was just the the challenges in life, you know, as a subtitle of Didn't See It Coming says that no one expects, but it seems like everyone experiences. And so it led me to the point where at 41, I had, I was literally at, at the top of the world. I was at the top of my game. Um, I had met some of the people at North Point Church, Andy Stanley's church. Um, my friend Reggie Joyner introduced me to Andy. Andy and Reggie in- invited me to speak in 2006 at North Point. I gave my first keynote in front of a crowd of 2,500 people, never had an audience that size before. And according to all accounts, I, I crushed it. It was a great talk. Um, even Andy was super encouraging after, you know, and, uh, my, my wife and kids were there in the front row 
And we flew back to Toronto. And when I got off the plane, it's like I fell off a cliff. And I went from like the highest high to this deep, dark place within a, a matter of, of weeks. And I started, I, that was burnout. And I had been burning the candle at both ends, you know, pedal to the metal for a decade. Um, I've learned a lot of stuff in the last 12 years since I burned out. But, uh, you know, when I was in my 30s, as we got more people, I thought the solution to that was more hours. You know, more people is more hours. And because I was in ministry, uh, more people, more hours equals more faithful. That's a terrible math in terrible theology, but I didn't know any better. And I sort of came to the end of my physical abilities. As Greg McEwen has written in his incredible book, Essentialism, you know, I, I did not protect the asset. He talks about the asset being you, your body, your mind, your health. Did not do a good job of that. I was not living in a way today that would help me thrive tomorrow. And then um, also emotionally, I would say looking back on it, probably emotionally and relationally, I was really burned out. Um, ministry's hard. Life's hard. Yeah. Forget it. I mean, if you're in business, it's hard, right? You hire staff, you think they're going to be with you forever and then they leave. And then you're like, well, why would you leave? And so you hire some more people and then they go, or you have to fire them and you're on round three or four and you're going, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this isn't fun. I didn't sign up for that. So I had a lot of that, some friendships that kind of tanked in the process. And at the end of the day, by the time I hit 40, I was, I was just like low and I'm not somebody who struggles with depression. Um, but I was definitely, I would have met all the signs for clinical depression in the summer of 2006. And I was seeing a counselor and we were going through some stuff, but like, I kind of thought it was over. And so after a decade of ministry, everything on the outside looks amazing. Cause, cause you know, we had people traveling literally from coast to coast to see our church. And, but on the inside it was it was a mess. And again, without, without like, there wasn't an affair, there wasn't a porn addiction. Like, you know, I wasn't drinking too much. It wasn't, wasn't those things you read about in the headlines. It was just like, wow, life is hard. And it just about took me out. So that's what the book's about. I'm trying to block out. I use a co-space, my office. So we have people in here. I'm in a conference room. So I'm sure we're sharing the mic with other people. Um, Understood. I want to ask you this for people, um, and even myself, I've, I've been there, but what does burnout look like? What are we looking for before we dive into some of the things you, you dealt with? I mean, what are some signs of that as, you know, you talk about burning the candle at both ends because we feel like we have to perform. And like you yeah. said, like people saw, you know, you had this amazing, um, uh, what should I say? The church is thriving. All these great things are happening, but you're dying on the inside. Yeah. What is that? So a few, a few signs to look for. Um, one for me, for sure. And these are personal, but in talking to hundreds of other leaders, I think they're, they're more than just personal. It's a little bit, um, there's some universal now universality in these. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, one big one. Uh, my passion was fading. Uh, I'm a pretty passionate person. I love getting up in the morning. I love tackling what's ahead. But one sure sign of burnout for me was my passion was gone. Like I just, and I, it wasn't just for ministry. It was like for nothing. Um, you know, I wasn't that passionate about family anymore. Even though I love my family, I wasn't that passionate about hobbies or rest or recreation. So that was a big thing. Um, another one, you no longer feel the highs or the lows. Like emotionally, what I've learned is you're, you're supposed to experience joy and you're supposed to experience sorrow. Um, God created us that way. When I was burning out and in the years prior to burnout, uh, the emotions kind of went from like these ups and downs, which are normal, not like bipolar right. or whatever, but just like normal, like, oh, that's amazing. Or, oh man, I'm so sad. That's normal. I just got flat like pretty much non-responsive. It was just like driving across the Great Plains or the prairies. It's like just flat. Um, and then and then that was interspersed. The flatness was interspersed with inappropriate, disproportionate emotions. So for example, something really minor, like someone left the fridge door open, meltdown. <laughs> it's like, whoa, wait a minute. 
They left the fridge door open. It's not the end of the world, you know, but you're, you're, you know, this towels on the floor and you're like, Whoa, that was an 11 when it's really a two. Like, yeah, yeah, maybe it's an issue. You shouldn't leave the fridge door open, but you should handle it at a fridge door open level, not a, a nuclear meltdown. So that was a problem or, or it can be inappropriate the other way that somebody says, Hey, did you hear that? So-and-so just died. And you're like, Oh, that sucks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, How about this one? Everybody drains you. Like, let's be honest. Not everybody energizes you. There's always going to be drain draining people. But like when everybody drains you, that is not a good sign. Um, Another one, I got a whole section of the book devoted to cynicism, but just that you're becoming cynical and cynicism snuffs out hope. You no longer believe the best. Uh, number six, and this is this is where, and fortunately for me, addictions weren't part of that. If I have an addiction, it would be to work and to food. That would be it. Because I'm a pastor. What am I going to do? Drugs? No. Drink too much? No. Sex? No. So I just work too much. I eat too much. But addictions happen because nothing satisfies you. Mm. It's like, I'm just not happy. The church can never be big enough. Uh, the staff can never work hard enough. Um you know, nothing, nothing gives you pleasure anymore. Another thing that really in the, in the profound stages of burnout, you just can't think straight. It's like, you know, that you're capable of a level of thinking that you just can't access anymore. Uh, an eighth sign would be your productivity is dropping. So you're putting in eight or 10 hours, but like you're doing nothing or, you know, it takes you forever to empty your inbox or, um, you're just not producing at a level that you should be. Number nine, I've hinted at this, you're self-medicating. So you're taking to food or to drugs or to alcohol or to sex or, or to some form that isn't healthy to medicate your pain away. And a lot of people do that. Uh, here's one that really hit me. And I realized this as soon as in my recovery, but I had stopped laughing. Uh, I realized in that summer of 2006, I probably didn't laugh once, even if something was funny, like a movie or a joke or whatever. And I remember in, in, in the beginning stages of recovery, listening to something, it was too early for podcasts. This is 06, but probably on the radio. And like, I laughed out loud and I thought, oh my goodness, I don't think I've laughed out loud in like six months. Yeah. What was that? Am I Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what was that? Just came out of my body, right? And and then the other sign that I mentioned that I saw in myself is that sleep and time off no longer refuel you. So you know, if you have a bad day, you're like, okay, I got to get eight hours sleep. But I but I had a lot of sleep and it wasn't doing it. I took a vacation and I felt worse at the end of my vacation than I did at the beginning. And and that's a sign that something more fundamental is is out of place. Now, I think it's normal at the pace of life that we live today to have one or two of those signs from time to time. If you're there there were 10 or 11 that I outlined. If you're like 11 for 11, that's time to go see a doctor and a Christian counselor right away. Um so so those are the signs I've seen. And uh I remember my counselor said to me, he said, "Carrie, I want you to remember how this feels. He says, because you will recover. I don't know how he knew that. I'm so thankful he was right. He said, you will recover, but some people never do. And if you remember how dark it is right now, that will give you the ability to empathize with those who are there. He's right. Yeah, that's really good. Um, man, you're hitting home. I've, I've, I went through that in my uh, early uh, 30s and had to learn this stuff, but it's it's interesting um, a lot of the things that you hit on, I feel like even lately I've, I've had to go through because sometimes I, th- I think we do burn the candle at both ends. And I just love being raw and real about stuff, especially for my audience, because we have multiple businesses. We do a podcast. And man, I got to tell you, there's sometimes I get to Friday and I'm just like, I don't think I can move like I'm just spent. And then uh, and, and then even thought of having to go to church. I mean, we go to a great church and there's loving people and my wife does stuff there and it's a happy, they're great people. And I'm like, dude, if I even got to step into church right now and just smile at somebody, uh, it feels overwhelming. So I, I say all that because I think, um, a lot of us get to that place 
uh, like you talked about through your book, but what's the fix? So it's easy to relate yeah. and say, Hey, great. I have these symptoms and I suck and life sucks. And you know what I'm saying? But, <laughs> but there's a fix in what, like, take me on that. Some of that journey uh, yeah. of, of you walking through that. Well, there is no fix, John. I'm kidding. shows over everybody go home shows over everybody Uh, yeah no fortunately there is but you know you know what's challenging is for a lot of people they just accept that as normal now that's like i'm just always going to be tired i'm always going to be exhausted and i realized by the grace of god for me it was the summer of 2006 so the burnout started i mean i guess i'd been burning out for a year or two but like when it became unsustainable. Like I can't even work anymore. Uh, that was May of 2006. By the end of August, I was preaching again. Uh, I told my elder board about it. You know, all the people who needed to know knew that it was an issue. And I'm like, I got to get back into the saddle and just try this. And so I preached apparently a pretty good series. My elders came up and said, man, you're back. I'm like, well, maybe it felt like that to you, but it sure doesn't feel that way to me. So, but by September, I had started to get flickers of passion back where I would think about the mission of our church and I'm like, oh, that was good. And I had spent August of 2006 sleeping and crying. So this was part of my story. I don't think it's a universal thing, but I, I had, you know, kept the pedal to the metal so hard that I think sleep is a little bit like money. You can pile up a deficit, but eventually your deficit becomes a debt if you don't pay it back. And eventually the debt needs to be paid off. So um, August, I feel like I paid my, my sleep debt back because I was just tired all the time. So I'd sleep eight or 10 hours a night and then I'd nap two or three times during the day. And by the end of the month, I'm like, okay, I feel better. I feel... I feel like I've got an even keel. So there was that. I also cried a lot in August of uh, 2006, which is really weird to talk about as a guy. I, I, you know, in my early 30s, I didn't want to send, I didn't want to go to counseling. I sent people to counseling. I was, yeah. I was smarter than that, better than that. You know, not you have true. a law degree. Who needs who needs counseling, right? Who needs counseling? Who, who right. needs empathy? I mean, that's for weak people, not right. not for me. Absolutely. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time in a counselor's chair. And I learned a lot about myself. And I had a mentor of mine, Terry Wardle, say to me, ministry is a series of ungrieved losses. And he's right. And I was terrible at grieving. If somebody leaves your church, right? Someone quits your business. Somebody, some client leaves. And you're like, oh, no big deal. I didn't need them anyway. That's what the cynic says, right? You harden your heart. So I was of that view And what I realized in that summer of 2006, going right back to my childhood, is no, you actually feel that stuff, and it bottles up. And sometimes it comes out as rage, sometimes it comes out as anger, sometimes it comes out as depression, sometimes it comes out as despair. And so I had to go through decades of just grieving in the course of about a month, where, and it still wells up from time to time, where it's like, oh, I wonder what that is. But the scripture has a very helpful view of grieving. For example, if you look at the Old Testament, when Moses died, the people of Israel grieved for 40 days and 40 nights. And I read that for years and I thought, what is wrong with those people? Like (laughs) if the funeral's at noon, go to work at two, like just, you know, have those little triangle sandwiches, be back at the office at two o'clock. What's wrong with you people? We don't do a good job of grieving. And I, I stunk at it. So even when I was, you know, writing this book earlier this year, I'd ask someone to write the foreword. You'll notice if you get the book, there's no foreword to the book. And this is how it happened. I asked two people to write the foreword. They're good friends. And they said they were too busy to do it. Well, I was like devastated. And part of me, I wasn't focusing anymore. And I'm like, what is that? What is that? I'm still not good as a guy at naming my emotions, but I've had, you know, I've spent thousands of dollars on counseling. So I went back to it and I thought, oh, I know I'm disappointed. I feel rejected. I'm sad. And I didn't cry over it, but like I processed it, got up, walked around, prayed about it. And by noon, I was refocused on work. You know what I just did? I just grieved that loss. And otherwise, it would have gone under. And the next time I saw that person, I'll see both those people this month. 
there's no ill will. They were just really busy doing their own stuff. And we'll be able to high five each other and hang out. And we have a great friendship. Like so, so there's no problem with that. They've both gone on to become great supporters of the book. But, you know, I have to deal with that stuff. So I grieved my losses. I slept. It took me about three or four months to get back to what I would call 70% of normal. Within a year, I was maybe 80% of normal. But it took five years for me to really get to the point from the time I burned out to the point where I felt like, okay, I am no longer in recovery. That was about five years. Now, maybe you can do it a lot faster if you're burning out. But I realized in the process, and this was the key for me, the deep desire that we all have is to get back to normal. It's like, I just want my life back to normal. But by the grace of God, I realized that normal got me to burnout. Mm. And if I went back to normal, my old normal, burnout was right around the corner. Like what? Was it going to be 41, 42? I burned out again, 43, 44. How old do I have to be before (laughs) I, I totally burn out? And so what I became obsessed with, and this is a big part of the book too, is I said, I got to find a new normal. I got to figure this out. Like, cause normal got me burned out. So what is my new normal? And so the antidote to burnout for me over the last decade has, it's best summed up by the single line. I've got to live today in a way that will help me thrive tomorrow. That's it. I just got to live today in a way that will help me thrive tomorrow. And I think about that in terms of five categories, spiritually, you know, how's my relationship with God emotionally, how am I doing on the inside? Am I processing things healthily, relationally, uh, financially, and physically? I had ignored my physical health. So I've been in much better health over the last decade. Relationally, you can easily, as a, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, be in draining relationships where you're always giving. In ministry, you're, you're, you're counseling people, you're trying to help people through their pain, but you should have an equal number of energizing relationships in your life. The kind of people that when you're with them, you're like, how did five hours just disappear? I thought we've been together for five minutes because you've got way too many meetings that are the other way around where it's five minutes, but it felt like five hours. Yeah. Right? You need to you need to compensate that financially living with margin, uh, you know, physically getting I become a sleep Nazi. I really, really I have a sleep app. I try to get seven to eight hours every night. I take naps now. I become a nap evangelist. Uh, but I, I feel great. And if those five, if those five things are balanced in my life, and the reason I put today in is we always say, no, 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 this is just a season, right? Like I'm launching a book right now today as we're having this interview. I actually felt great. I took time off on the weekend. Uh, I went boating with one of my sons. I went for bike rides. I did about a hundred kilometers of biking. Uh, now I worked and I went to church and I was part of it, but But the thing is, you can always say, well, I'm just launching a book. Yeah, but after I'm launching a book, then I'm writing my next book. Or I've got this series coming up, or I got a a peak travel season coming up. Uh, My team knows I'm not booking red-eye flights. Like, you have to get my particular permission to book a red-eye flight. And if it costs a little bit more money to fly during the day, during business hours, then so be it. But I've, I've realized that every time I've cheated that in my first 40 years of life, I paid a disproportionate price. So it's not being a prima donna or a diva, but you've just got to learn for for you and for your rhythms, the way God created you, how can you live today in a way that will help you thrive tomorrow, not just survive. So I haven't always got it right over the last decade, but that has been my song day after day, season after season. And I find that if I start running up a very small deficit, like let's say I'm like, man, I'm just tired. It's like, I've got to be able to get to the end of that quickly so that I can get back to the point. Usually it's a 24 hour turnaround where if I have that one pause day, I'm like, I'm back. Ah, that's good. Because when you burn out, you know, you take 24 hours off, you're not back at hour 23. You might be back at month three, month eight, year three. I don't want to go through that again. And I don't want people to go through that. Yeah, absolutely. I I wanted to ask you that and you hit on it a little bit, but how are you purposeful about that? Because it's easy um, because you talked about the old normal and getting into the new normal, which means there's got to be some uh, change and a little bit of discipline there. So like on a daily basis, what are a couple of things like you do purposefully 
to make sure you don't get into those old ruts and you stay on track? My reconstruction was a lot of counseling and then a lot of coaching, just leadership coaching, because it's not all the interior journey. I was just not very good at scale as a leader. So I had to learn to stop trying to run everything myself. A lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business people run into that where you're, you're just spending all day making decisions and I had to really empower a team that got us through the thousand barrier at our church. It's helping my company grow now that does you know, the blog, the podcast and everything. I just have to make fewer and fewer decisions. So that was a big part of it. Some of it was I moved to a fixed calendar. I teach this in a course I offer called the High Impact Leader. And in the High Impact Leader, I kind of outline in detail, but I'll give you the, the nutshell of it, where I moved to a fixed calendar. I realized in my reconstruction that my important priorities in my life really happen in repeated patterns. And so I try to get up at the same time every day. I spend my first hour with God. And then I try to book no appointments prior to 10 or 11 a.m. on a weekday. I have two days a week that I set aside as no fly zones, no meetings, no nothing, because the most important thing I bring to my work is my energy and my creativity. And I find that that actually needs real time to develop and grow. And so I have to be very determined to carve that time out because I could, I could fill 70 hours a week with meetings and other people's demands. Another thing would be to schedule to my priorities. So I have a fixed schedule that is pretty much the same every week. Uh, Sunday is preaching and then the afternoon is free. Saturday is a day off. Friday is a no meeting zone. Uh, Tuesday, we're trying to make now a no-fly zone as things get busier. Uh, no meetings on Tuesday. I try to do all my meetings on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And even then, I try to restrict that to a half day of meetings. Because I know for myself, with what I'm called to do, I need to spend at least 50% of my time not in meetings to be able to produce content, preach sermons, connect with people, build into my team, plan for the future. So everybody will have a different formula. Right. But that's been really, really important to me. And then getting some hobbies that take me away from work because workaholism runs in my blood. And so I picked three Bs. I didn't really have any hobbies in my 30s, which really is a bad way to live life. And so I have three Bs, I bicycling, boating, and barbecue. I have a big green egg in my backyard. I use it almost every day. Uh, we have a boat that we, we live right across the street from a lake. So we're out on the boat a lot. And then I cycle because it's the only form of exercise I actually like. So yeah. those, are, those are things that have really helped. So those have been some habits, rituals, and disciplines that are just really important. I found my 30s was kind of all chaos. And I did this while my kids were still at home. They're gone now. They're in, in university and out into life. But you can do that when you have kids. You can You can create little margins, little space in your life and repeated routines. And I learned the power of saying no. I joke with my team all the time that most of their job is just saying no nicely all day. Because if, if you know, you have most, most of your leaders who are listening can relate to this, John, you will always have more opportunities than you have time. Yeah. And if you're not careful, you will be living your life according to other people's priorities, not yours. So I had to learn that on the leadership level. I also had to learn my emotional and personal and spiritual rhythms. And when I put that all together, that's where I got the reconstruction from. I like that. I, I mean, I think you really could sum that up and it's just taking the time to sit down and really me meditate on the word, but just asking like... What, what, what is me? What do I like? What I don't like? What works? I mean, it's really just taking the time because I think a lot of us get so busy in those. I don't even know what a 40 hour work week looks like. I laugh when people say, oh, my yeah. gosh, I work for I'm like, I've worked probably 70 hours most of my life. Um, and, and because like you, I'm a worker, I, I enjoy it. But the thing is, it's just it's not healthy. And, and it's taking the time for us personally to to know what works and what doesn't. Yeah, you know, I, I think everybody's got a number too. And I'm I I think most people who do their own thing end up working more than 40 hours a week, but I figured out my number. It's 55. Hmm. If I if I move beyond 55 hours a week, I start to get into that red zone, that danger zone. And that doesn't sound like a lot, like in entrepreneur circles, 
But I think there is a, if, if you look scripturally at the rhythm of life, we're supposed to spend about a third of our life sleeping. In addition to that, a seventh of our life resting. And then God throws in a whole lot of feast days and celebration days on top of that. And I think the more that I live my life according to the natural rhythms that I have, the better I do. And I also find if I show up rested, I can create, let's say I have a 2000 word article to write. Well, that might take me two hours as opposed to two days if I'm exhausted because my brain doesn't work when I'm tired. So whatever you have to do, and some people, the number is 70, some people, the number is 50, some it's 60, 65. I'd say 55 to 60 is sort of my ideal max. If I'm under 50 hours a week, I get really bored really fast. So that's sort of my zone. And That's it works cool. for me. I'm going to keep that in mind. That's actually really good advice. Okay. Going to skip a lot of questions as we wrap up the show. Um, one that I never skip, and I do want to ask you, if you could go back to the younger you, Carrie, uh, you're going to pick an age. You're going to give yourself advice. You can't uh, change anything, obviously, in the future, but you're going to just give yourself a motivational pep talk. What age would you go back to, and what advice would you give yourself? I'd probably go back to 31 and I would say, listen to your wife. It's not her. It's you. That's awesome. That's what I would say to myself because I spent too much of my time. Our marriage went through a rough season. Uh, We've been 28 years together. We absolutely love each other. She's my best friend, but it hasn't been easy. It's been worth it. Yeah. And when things started to go off the rails, I was convinced it was 100% her. She was convinced it was 100% me. So I go and talk to 31-year-old Carrie and say, you idiot, it's you. Yeah, that's good advice. So um, we just (laughs) celebrated our 20th year. Uh, our, hey, congrats. John. Thank you. Our first, uh, we, I joke, I say this, this last 10 has been our honeymoon. The first 10 was hell. And, uh, <sighs> and, uh, because we were young and we were learning, like we both came from broken families. We didn't understand what it looked like to have, uh, to be married and to work through stuff. And, and, uh, but the advice, if, if you're listening, whether you're thinking about getting married or you're married, just learning to love again and, and, to listen to each other and be willing to take criticism and just work on ourselves because our spouse always needs something from us that we're probably not meeting and, and we're just not listening. And for some of us, myself are hard headed and think like you said, it, well, it's not me, it's them. And, uh, it's, it's us. So, yeah. <laughs> and man, I'm going to save well, you years. Yeah. Thank you. And we're saving men. I'm just telling you right now, Carrie's advice is going to save you 10 years of heartache if you'll just take it. Mm-hmm. And lots of money in counseling too. Like that was free. <laughs> yes. So there you go. That was free. Okay. So, um, parting thoughts, Carrie, as we wrap up, um, two things, uh, where do we find you? So I want to know more about where we find your book. If we want to have you as a speaker or even listen to your podcast as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Well, one easy way to get to it. It's a lot easier. If you spell my name or an approximation of it, you'll, you'll find me, but go to didn't see it coming book.com. That lives right on my site. It's the portal into everything. Didn't see it coming book.com. We'll get you there. And then I'm on all the socials, uh, either C Newhoff, N I E U W H O F, or Carrie Newhoff, C A R E Y. Uh, I know it's a tough name, Dutch background. But anyway, um, that's where we can find it. Parting shot, hope is, is this. I hope the book, Didn't See It Coming, feels like hope to you. And I hope it feels like help to you. Because once you're cynical, you don't have to stay cynical. Once you're burned out, you don't need to stay burned out. Once you feel empty, you know, that's a problem for a lot of leaders is the emptiness of success. It's like this company is bigger than I ever thought. Why do I feel so empty inside? That was all the lawyers I worked with in Toronto. It doesn't have to be that way. So we address seven of the biggest challenges that kind of no one expects, everyone experiences. And I hope that feels like hope and help to you if you get a chance to look at the book. Amen to that. Thank you so much. So I forgot to tell our listeners on past shows, um, this uh, specific publisher um, that Carrie's involved with, if you will email us, we always send out five copies. So for the first five people, 
um, that will send me their email address, get on Facebook and like us and send me a Facebook message. Uh, my wife will take your information and we will send you a free book uh, that Carrie just wrote. So do not forget to do that. Pretty you, sweet. Yeah, it's really sweet. And actually, you'd be surprised. You know, we get hundreds of thousands of downloads and only a handful of people will actually take the time because they just assume, oh, well, somebody else did it. And uh, believe it or not, we five books uh, it, it'll take a week sometimes for people to, to send them in but l- recently i think that actually happened in the first day but it, it it's really surprising to me well cool i'm yeah. glad you do that and yeah. uh, waterbrook's a great publisher waterbrook penguin has been uh, wonderful in partnering with this book so nice yeah. of them to do that they've been great all right carrie just want to uh, hold on just a second but i just want to tell you thank you so much for your story and uh, obviously your life journey of what you've been through and sharing that with us and uh, hopefully saving us thousands of dollars of counseling and uh, years of heartache. Hey, it's my pleasure. John, thanks for what you do. And uh, you do. I really appreciate you and your leadership. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hold on just a second. Roar Nation, thank you guys. I hope you love that. I hope it inspires you. I highly recommend grabbing the book. Um, I think at some point in life, if you haven't experienced burnout, you're probably on the way to burnout. Um, I've been there twice, and uh, it's a hard road uh, to hoe sometimes, so this will definitely help you along your way. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Jump on and uh, send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We love you guys. Remember, be real, be authentic, and be you. God bless. That's all for this episode of Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You. Be sure to go to areyoureal.org for your free questionnaire to identify your gifts and talents and how you can use them to help people become leaders and catapult them into their destiny to help others become the leaders of tomorrow. We appreciate you spending your time with us and look forward to helping you reach out and revolutionize next time on Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You.